0: We're in Luke chapter 4 for our message this morning. Let's again just bow our heads before the Lord and give him our complete attention this morning. Father, you said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And Lord, we know that you're able with your word to do anything you want. You said I'm the God of all flesh and nothing is too hard for you. And so, Lord, we just ask right now in Jesus' name, as we approach the holy word of God, that, Lord, you would give us a holy hush in our hearts and upon this place. Lord, that you might be able to do all that you want to through what you've ordained this message to do. So please, Father, we are hearing, our hearts are open, and we're praying that your spirit would speak. And we're asking for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being tempted forty days by the devil, and in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority will I give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone.'" And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. We have before us a very famous and intimate passage of scripture the temptation or the testing of Jesus Christ. And every single one of us is familiar with this arena of testing or being tested. If you recall from your days in school, there was tests that would frequently come our way. And, you know, there were varying degrees of difficulty depending on the type of test you were given. I think for me the hardest test or the most feared was the essay test. Because on an essay test, you were simply given a topic or a proposition and you had to demonstrate that you understood it with clarity and conciseness. Next down the list in difficulty, you know, a little bit easier than that was the fill in the blank test. In that, you know, you only had to have a one or a two word answer, you know, and the rest was kind of given to you and sometimes lead you to what the answer was, but they were still difficult. And then after that would be the multiple choice. And those were okay because you had a 25% chance even if you knew nothing. And they say statistically, if you just circle C, most of the times that's what the answer is. You know, So you, you really could improve your odds even a little bit more with multiple choice. Next after that would be the true or false, 50-50. You know nothing. If it sounds even the least bit ridiculous, you just circle false. You know, And if it sounds like it could be credible at all, true, and you're done. You got it. But even easier than that, from time to time, you would get the open book test. And that would be when the teacher would give you the test, but say, you can use the textbook or your notes from class, and you could determine what the answers are if you can find them there. And you'd think, all right, this is great. If I remember anything from the reading, I can get my way through this test. But sometimes, once in a while, you would score. And there would be the partner test where you would get to partner with someone else in the class and you could take the test that way. And if you could be that person that could be so lucky as to get with that person. You know, it was usually a girl, right? And she always studied and always knew the answers. And you got partnered with them for the test. You were certain that even if you knew absolutely nothing, you could ace that test because of how you were taking it. Well, that's kind of the scenario that we have before us here. We see Jesus being tested, but the reason why, or at least one of the reasons why Jesus was being tested was so that we would be able to see how he navigated this testing and what the answers were ahead of time so that when we go through it, we could partner with him through the testings that we endure within our own life. It's often an anomaly to me to consider why Jesus would go through this. I mean, why did Jesus have to be tempted by Satan himself? I mean, here Satan was made essentially by Jesus and now Jesus is subjecting himself to a temptation by him. Why would he go through that? Well, three reasons briefly. First of all, he did it to purify. See, Jesus came, his primary mission was to take away the sins of the world. He came to be the atoning price or to absorb the penalty that sin requires. Now, in order for him to do that, he had to successfully navigate through every temptation and trial that we go through without failing at any one point. And so in order for him to say mission accomplished, he had to go through this time of tempting. It was part of the purification process as it would concern you and me later. He also did it, number two, to identify with us. See, It says that we don't have a high priest in Jesus who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But he was, in all points, tempted like we are. In other words, he didn't want to just be God in heaven who said, here I've created you and given you a list of commands and requirements and I've set before you a divine will. But in and through all that, I'm up here and you're down there and I don't know what you're really feeling. No. God wanted to go through everything that we go through. So in Christ... God was feeling the weight of those temptations, so it was to identify with us. And then third of all, and maybe most significant for us this morning, is he did it also to exemplify, and that is to show us or to give us an example as to how we, when we are tested, because all of us are tested spiritually, how it is that we can succeed so as not to see our lives shipwrecked. It's interesting to me to consider when this event took place within Jesus' life. It happened, first of all, right after a mountaintop experience. At the end of the last chapter, we saw Jesus baptized. He had lived for 30 years in obscurity. We know very little about what took place during that time. No doubt, he was growing up just like we do, living life just the way that we do. Now it's time for him to enter his ministry, and so he was baptized by John the Baptist. And we're told that coming up out of the waters, the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God began to descend upon him in bodily form like a dove. And then the voice of God ratified the ministry of Christ from heaven and saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him or hear him. He was approved and ratified. And then he came up out of the water filled with the Spirit. That was a mountaintop experience, I think, if there ever could be one. An ending of his private life and the beginning now of his public ministry, what he came to do. I find that that's often the case for you and me as well. When does temptation come to us? Oftentimes it's after a mountaintop. Just after you come home from a retreat, it's been a great time, you've heard the word of God, you feel refreshed, recharged. You feel like, God, there's some things that have been put under and put behind and I'm moving forward with you, this is great. And then you come home and you find that there's family problems and the hot water tank is not in the hot water tank anymore, it's all over the basement floor, and, you know, and there's problems at work and you lose your job and all this and you say, God, what gives? So often, testing comes on a mountaintop. It's also interesting to me to note that Jesus was physically exasperated when Satan made his move. He had gone 40 days without food, and it says that he was hungry. And I think that's one of those biblical understatements, you know, that he was hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. And it was in that time of physical exhaustion and weakness That Satan made his move to try to get Christ to compromise. Do you find, like I do, that that's the case? How often times Satan comes to us? He doesn't hit us when we're strong. He comes in once we've been working 16-hour days. And when we're at the end of our resources, and it seems like on every side of our life, responsibility is just building up and weighing on us. It's then that he comes in and says, hey, just relax a little bit. Or don't worry about the word of God or the will of God for your life or seeking God. And he works his way in oftentimes in a time of physical exhaustion. Well, that's exactly what the case was for Jesus as well. So what were the temptations? How is it that Satan tried to get Jesus off the course that God had intended him to be upon for his life? Satan has a very small playbook, but he uses it very well. In 1st John chapter 2 verse 16, John reveals to us the sum total of Satan's acts. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And every temptation that Satan will ever throw at anyone, whether it was Eve in the garden, Christ in the wilderness, or you and I in our lives, in our experience walk with the Lord, will fall under the banner of one of those three categories. The lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, or the pride of life. And we see it no different here with Jesus as he's tempted by Satan. Three things, three temptations that come, each of them falling under one of those banners. And so the first one dealt with Jesus' physical needs and it fell under the banner of the lust of the flesh. He said, you're hungry. You have a need physically, you're exhausted. So use your power to command these stones to be made into bread, a different substance and satisfy the hunger that you have. Now for you and me, we read that and we say, that doesn't even really sound like all that much of a temptation. I mean, he had the power to do it and he was hungry. There's nothing wrong with eating. And that's really no different than you or me having a $5 bill in our pocket and driving down the road and seeing a sign that says five for five. And we say, hey, good timing. That must be provision. And we pull in and use the power of the dollar to purchase five tacos or whatever it is, you know, and and we eat the food. We think, well, what is the deal with this? And why is this such a great temptation here that he's even trying it? Well, here's why. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert for the purpose of this time of fasting and testing. Therefore, it was the will of God for Jesus at this time to not be eating. That was what was going on here. And what Satan was tempting Jesus to do, what the temptation was, was to step outside of the will of God in order to satisfy a physical need. Or, or, you know, or a physical appetite or to put a physical appetite above and before the will of God. So how did Jesus fight this temptation? He quotes a verse from Deuteronomy, from God's word. And he says, it is written that man shall not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I want you to understand something here, that these were not magic words. It wasn't like there was like this chess game going where Satan kind of threw something and Jesus kind of had the right defense. And so all he had to do was speak forth the right combination of scriptures and Satan would go, yeah oh, you know, you got me with that one and or ah, and run away. You know, that, that wasn't what was going on here. See, the power to fight off this temptation was not in what Jesus said verbally or the words, but rather it was the truth of what that verse means that was living out through his life that made it so that that temptation had no place to take root within him. Understand this. Man does not live very simply by the physical sustenance of the body, but rather we are three-part beings. We are body, that's the physical, but we are also soul and spirit. And the soul and the spirit of man are not kept by our physical body needs, The soul and the spirit are sustained in a completely different way. And Jesus understood what that way was. In John chapter 4, remember Jesus with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman? His disciples were a little bit shocked that he would even take the time to interact with her because, I mean, Jews and Samaritans, they just don't mix. And single rabbi men and young single women. I mean, the whole thing was just confusing to them. And they came back and they saw it and they're like, what's he doing? But as she went their way, they began to get into this little discussion about whether Jesus had eaten. And they said, did anybody bring him any food? Did he get any food? And Jesus said to them, he said, I have food that you don't even know about. And they're going, what food? Someone brought him lunch? And they they were lost. They were clueless. And then he laughs and he looks at them and he says, guys, I have food that you don't know of. My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. See, what sustains me is not just what I take in physically and ingest, but also what I do living my life in the will of God. As I do his will, that sustains me spiritually. That's what satisfies my soul. And the other thing is just secondary and primary. So if that's true, that man is sustained spiritually by being in the will of God, then that means to remove myself from the will of God in order to satisfy an appetite of my flesh is to rob life from where life really comes from. So it's a net loss. Do you understand? So Satan is tempting Jesus, go outside of God's will for your life right now to meet a need that you have. And don't worry about that. You can come back to that later. But Jesus understood, no, it doesn't work that way. Man doesn't just live by satisfying the needs of the body, but it's by the word of God, the will of God. I can't help but think of Solomon here. He became in scripture the poster boy for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here was a man who was given everything. At the onset of his life, he could see both ways of God very clearly, that they had to follow his will and to go after him and to be blessed. But he was given all of the resources, power, and wealth of this world to do whatever he wanted to do. And he made a decision at some point in his life, and he said, you know what, I am going to venture onto this path of living after my flesh. And I'm going to withhold nothing from me at all. I'm going to indulge in anything that I want, whatever I want, no matter what it is or no matter what it costs. And I'm going to find out if there's anything in this life that can satisfy me outside of the will of God. And so he did it. And You can read Ecclesiastes chapter two, just the first 17 verses as he begins to list off the things that he tried to put into his life to satisfy the vacuum and void that was inside. He tried laughter, wine, houses in various places, vineyards, gardens, orchards, fountains and pools, which were all signs of royalty and luxury in those days, servants, which would be the modern equivalent of appliances now, herds and flocks, silver, gold and stones that were so abundant and vast, no treasury of wealth has ever been able to match it since, male and female singers, and not to mention 1,000 wives and concubines that he kept company with throughout. And after trying everything he could, he concluded the matter by saying this, Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them, the lust of the eyes. And I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, the uh, lust of the flesh. So for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which my hand had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity And a grasping for the wind. There was no prophet under the sun. And then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? In other words, after me, no one is ever going to be able to try the things I've tried and do the things I've done. No one can experience something that I haven't already experienced. And then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. At the end of life, we all end up in the grave. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Now watch verse 17. The first four words are the most profound, I think. Therefore, I hated life. So here's a man who filled himself with everything that he could possibly get his hands upon to fill himself. And at the end of the day, the bottom line, his conclusion was, I hated life. See, to just live to satisfy the desires of the body or the desires of the mind or the eyes is not to live life at all. If drugs could truly satisfy, then the junkie would be the happiest person in the world. If alcohol could truly satisfy, then the alcoholic would be the happiest person in the world. If sex could truly satisfy, then the prostitute would be the happiest person in the world. If power and money could satisfy, then the politician or the hedge fund manager would be the happiest person in the world. What do we notice when we look around the world and we see everybody that has all these things that they're no better off than anybody else? They might have more. Their appearance of it might be something. But inside, they're just as empty. Because the only thing that can truly satisfy a life is to be rich spiritually and in your soul. And that only comes from standing complete in the will of God. Understand this. There is a place within the will of God to satisfy every appetite we have or to remove it if it's an appetite that God will never bless or condone. But he's made provision for all of those things. But to remove ourselves from the will of God in order to satisfy an appetite that we have is to bring a net loss to the situation. You end up more empty on the other side than you did. And Once you've tasted the power of his love, within your life and the life that he gives, there's nothing that could ever match that. And so we see Jesus uh, not falling into the lust of the flesh. The second temptation that was thrown his way uh, is under the banner of the lust of the eyes and it concerned his mission or his purpose or what he came to do. we're told that Satan brought him to an exceedingly high mountain and somehow supernaturally he showed to him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time. Now that tells you right there that there's something spiritual and supernatural happening. For him to be able to see the glory of Egypt, ancient Egypt, and then ancient Babylon, and then modern Rome in Jesus' day. And then to see into the future and even see what we are, the United States of America and the great kingdoms of today. And for Satan to hold that in front of Jesus through his eye gate and say, Do you see all of this? If you'll just bow down and worship me for one minute. I'll give it all to you and I have the right to do that. And he did. Because in the Garden of Eden, when God essentially gave Adam ownership of the planet, when Adam bowed the knee to Satan the first time, he yielded the authority of that ownership into Satan's hand. That's why Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age or the God of this world. Because right now he's the one that holds the cards. And that's why the world is the way that it is. Now, at the very core of what Satan was doing in this, and and by the way, the temptation in this whole thing was to do a right thing the wrong way. Because at the very core of what Jesus came to do, he came to redeem the world back to himself, back to God, and everything that's in it. That's what he came to do. And what Satan was basically giving to Jesus was the easy way. Hey, you came in order to redeem the world to yourself. And I understand what's involved in that. It's going to cost you a cross. It's going to cost you a crown of thorns. It's going to cost you the weight of the flagellum coming down upon your back. It's going to cost you that momentary separation where the Father turns his face away from you while the sins of the whole world are placed upon your back. It's going to cost suffering that goes beyond the suffering that anyone has ever experienced ever. But if you'll just bow down for one minute and worship me, you don't have to do any of that. I'll sign the deed right now and I'll give you the title deed to the earth and you can say mission accomplished in the whole thing. Well, how did Jesus fight this temptation? He looks at Satan and again, he quotes scripture, Deuteronomy again, the second time. And he says, it is written, you shall not, or I'm sorry, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What was the truth of that verse? Not the words, but the truth truth that Jesus knows is that there's two ways in this world. There's the narrow way that leads to life, and there's the broad way that leads to destruction. And it's been that way ever since the very beginning. When God came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned, and he took a lamb and he slew that lamb, and they watched the blood of an innocent substitute being poured out, they understood that that was because of their sin. And then God took the skin of that lamb and he made clothes for Adam and Eve. He covered their vulnerability and their nakedness through the death of an innocent substitute. And there was one way from the very beginning for sin to be put away, the shedding of innocent blood. But on the other side, there's a broad way. Everything else that man tries to do to bring himself back into a right relationship or right standing with God Everything that man tries to do to please God in any other way, he'll go to any length like Cain did. A great harvest of a garden, a great basket offered to God, but God refused it because there's only one way that God accepts. It's a narrow way that leads to life, but on the other side, a broad way that leads to destruction. And what Jesus understood is that there's only one God and there's only one way. And you will worship the Lord your God and Him only will you serve. And for me to remove myself from that way and just worship you for one second isn't going to work. Because though the broad path looks well and good from here, I understand that as soon as I set foot on it, I've put myself in a way of destruction because the broad path only always leads to destruction. That's where it goes. And so I'm not going to leave the process in order to find a quicker way to the outcome to get to the end because the process always affects the outcome. Understand church that Jesus didn't come here just to get the title deed back to himself. That was at the apex of his mission. And what he was in his mind is that he was going to redeem the world to himself. He was going to do that, but he was going to do a bunch of other things in the process as well. He came here to demonstrate the character of God. But had he bowed down to Satan for that minute, he would have shown that there's flaws in the character of God and his mission would have failed. He came to reveal the severity of sin that through his cross and suffering, we would understand what sin does and what sin costs. But had he circumvented the cross and bowed the knee to Satan there, he would have in that moment undid all of that demonstration and man would never know what sin ultimately cost. He came to demonstrate the meaning of divine love that a being as holy and high and grand as God, that he would look at something so sinful and so disqualified at us, and that he would give himself and lay himself down as a sacrifice in order that we might be forgiven, he would become guilty, the love of God, a love that can't be expressed in any other way, but it never would have been known had Christ buckled to that temptation. And he came to liberate and set us free. But had Jesus for one moment, even in secret, bowed the knee to Satan, then he would have fallen in the same way that Adam did in the garden when he partook of the fruit. Don't forget, church, that Satan is a liar. He said, I will give it to you, but divine law would not have allowed it, and it wouldn't have happened. And so the temptation came to do the right thing the wrong way. And so Satan comes to you, and he does the same thing. And he says, hey, you know, marriage is just a piece of paper. It doesn't mean anything beyond more than just what's written there. Your signature, the signature, the town where it is, the raised seal on the paper. That's all it really is. There's nothing more to it than that. It's just you live together, you have the same last name, and now you have a piece of paper. And so he comes to you that way. And You can buy into that temptation. You can say, okay, well, it's nothing. So process doesn't matter. The whole courting thing, the whole purity thing, the whole abstaining thing, The whole living in separate places thing. That doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, we're going to have their certificate and everything's going to be all well and good. If we can just get to that point, we can bear the reproach. But what you believed is that a marriage is nothing more than a piece of paper. But it's not. It's more. Jesus said that the two are becoming one. That you're building something and unifying something that has incredible power and incredible strength. And it's an incredible expression of what God is and who he is in the world. And it's a tool that God can use in the world in an incredible way that we don't even understand. But see, the process is important to not circumvent it. You see, well, a family, a family, a family is nothing more than just a bunch of people living in a household and there's chaos. So people plus household plus a name plus chaos equals a family. No, no, no. That's what a family might look like on the outside. But is that what God designed when God put a put a family in a place, when he knit it together and he said, this is what's going to happen when a unified whole of people call on me together and I'm holding it and navigating it through this world. I was listening to a teaching recently by Alan Redpath. He's uh, gone to be with the Lord, but a great man of God from a generation ago, but not so generation ago that there's not recordings of his sermons. You know, you get the idea. But he was telling the story about a time that he took a pastorate somewhere in England and there was a church of Satan that existed in the same vicinity as the church that he was pastoring. And he said that the Satanists that attended that fellowship of satanic ritual, whatever they did, would get together twice a week and pray for the breakup of Christian families. Now, not that that would have any meaning or merit or power against Almighty God, But what it does tell us is this, is that Satan knows the power of a Christian family and the influence that they can have over a society. But if a family is nothing more than just, hey, we just live together, it doesn't matter, we don't have to do this God's way, then you ruin all of that. You have the appearance of it, it looks right, but it's not what God intended. That can be with a career, it can be with a life. You can get to the end of your life and everyone can look at you or me and they can say, look what they did, look how much money they made, look at the impact it was. But did it please God? And does heaven look at it and say, they walked the narrow way that leads to life because that's the only life that's gonna count in the end. It doesn't matter what the outward is. It also matters how you got there. And so Jesus understood you can't get to the outcome and skip the process and expect that it's gonna be okay. He didn't give in to it. And he shows us that a right thing must be done the right way. The third temptation that comes to him It's under the banner of the pride of life and it had to do with his person. And in this one, Satan comes to him and Satan tries to fight back fire with fire. Jesus has quoted scripture twice and so now Satan comes to Jesus and he also quotes scripture. And he says, okay, you want scripture? I'll give you scripture. It is written. As he puts him on the pinnacle of a temple and tells him to throw himself down. It is written that he will give his angels charge over you. A misquoted out of context portion of Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge over you to bear you up lest at any time you should smash your foot against a stone. Hey, the Bible says that if you throw yourself down from here, God is obligated to meet you and help you and not let you get harmed in any way at all. What Satan is tempting Jesus to do in this thing is to put himself in a dangerous situation and then try and force God's hand and to do it in the name of faith. But it isn't faith to try and force the hand of God. It's presumption. And Jesus fights that temptation by looking back at him and saying, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. We are not as Christians, to operate independent of God and then expect that he exists to serve us. And thus we live reckless lives and call it faith. Oh, well, God said, I have a promise from God. He said, I will heal all your diseases. He said, by his stripes, I am healed. And so I'm not gonna take my insulin anymore. And God's just gonna have to heal me because he promised that he's gonna heal me. And so therefore he's obligated to because it says in the Bible that he's my healer. He's Jehovah, my healer, and so he's going to heal me. See, that's not faith. That's presumption to operate independent of God in that way. Or you quit a job that you don't like because you say, well, I just can't stand this. And the Bible says I'm supposed to have joy and I'm supposed to be blessed and happy and I'm not happy here. And so I'm just going to quit. I'm going to throw myself down from here because the Bible says that he's going to provide. He's going to bear me up. He's not going to let anything bad happen to me. And so he'll have to give me a better job or even just a different job. I don't even care. Just anything but this. But that's not faith. It's presumption because, see, God is doing something in your job. He's preparing you for something else. Or to serve him without prayer and preparation or to spend ahead or to live on credit and say, well, he promises that he's always going to provide. And to do that saying, well, we're just trusting the Lord. He is God. We are not. Philippians chapter one, verse six says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God is doing something with you. He has a plan and a process within that plan to bring you someplace that he has designed. He's got something he wants to do. And where you are right now, no matter where it is, for Jesus, it was in a place of suffering. It was a place of obscurity. It was a place where no one even knew who he was or where he was or where he came from or what he was going to do. But where God had him at that time or where God might have you at this time is a part of the process to prepare you for what he has for you next. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship or creation. We're his artwork or mold of clay and he's working us and shaping us we're created in christ jesus for good works that god has prepared that we would walk in them god has a plan he's got something that he's doing but where we are along the way is preparing us for what that is in the future and for us to remove ourselves from where he's got us now and change our circumstances because we don't like them it's for us to usurp his place of lordship within our lives And we never have the right to do that. And we never have the right to expect that if we do that, that it's going to turn out good and well for us. That's not faith. It's presumption and it's pride. Show them who you are now by doing this incredible deed of jumping off the temple and floating gracefully to the ground. Then they'll all know you're the Christ. They'll listen to everything you have to say and life will be easy. Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord. That's not the way that it's supposed to go. He is the Lord, I am the servant, and I must trust in him. It's amazing to me that Jesus endures this testing. I mean, you would think, here's God who made Satan, and Satan is throwing these random temptations at him. You would think that Jesus would just look at him and go, boo, you know? He could have. You would think that he would just vaporize him, just bring him to nothing, just to automatically, you know what, get, get out of here, what is that? And he could have, he had the power to do it. But then what would we do? See, he was doing it and enduring it, going through it, that we might look and see and learn and that we might have what we need then, that when those tests and temptations come our way, whether it be the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, that we might be prepared and ready. So what did Jesus do? How did Jesus win? And what can we also have? First of all, Jesus went into this after being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing that this temptation didn't have prior to the Spirit coming upon his life. The Bible tells us that on the day of Pentecost, when the church began, God poured forth his Holy Spirit and he made it available to every one of us. He calls that a gift and a privilege that had not been known in generations past, but that now has been revealed And that we have a precious privilege of having a relationship with God, with His Holy Spirit in and upon our lives like no other age of history, the church age, it's what we have. And God's made that available to every one of us for the asking. He said that if we would ask Him for the Holy Spirit, that He would give the Holy Spirit to us. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me. You'll have the ability to live the life that I've called you to live. I believe it's probably the least employed, most under-enjoyed privilege and position that we have as Christians today. I think it's important for us to daily ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit again. Do you know when the first revival of the church took place? A couple of days after the first outpouring on the day of Pentecost. Remember, the Spirit was poured out, 3,000 people got saved. I mean, it was an incredible thing. And then just a couple of days later, They were gathered in a room praying, and it says that the place was shaken, and they were all filled again with the Holy Spirit. See, we have a leak. We leak all the time. We leak minute by minute, second by second. And what that means is that we need to be filled again. And so constantly throughout our day to say, God, I need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. God, I'm about to get out of bed this morning. I need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. God, I'm going to talk to my wife. I need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. God, I've got a whole day of responsibilities and work. I need to be filled with your spirit moment by moment. Let your spirit empower me. That it wouldn't be I and the power of my flesh living this life, but it would be you living through me, Jesus. It's what you promised and afforded to me, and I'm waiting upon you, Lord. May my life be worthy that you would live in me. Moment by moment, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me to hear this message. Fill me to apply this message. Fill me to live for you. Fill me to serve you in whatever capacity you've called me to serve you. I need to be filled again and again, and again. And he affords, he gives that to us. The second thing it says is that Jesus was led of the Spirit. If you want to overcome temptation, not only do you need to be empowered by the Spirit, but you also need to be led of the Spirit. Which means that Jesus was sensitive to the best of his ability to walk within the will of God. Jesus didn't put himself in temptation. He was led of the Spirit into temptation. Do you see that? Because all too many Christians find themselves failing under the weight of temptation, but when you find out how they got into temptation, you realize that they weren't led of the Spirit into it. They led themselves into it. Well, I wanted to just see if I could employ the power of the Spirit, so I went into that club, and I sat down at the bar, and it didn't work. I I don't know where the power was, but I tried it, and I failed. And I failed on multiple levels. It was a disaster. It was a train wreck. Yes, because you're not being led of the Spirit of God. You understand? And then the third thing, and maybe probably the most practical for you and I that Jesus did that caused him to be victorious in this, is that he had a working knowledge of the word of God. Do you see that every time the temptation came, he faced it with scripture? He said, it is written. And then from Deuteronomy, it is written. And then from a different portion of Deuteronomy, and it is written. See, Jesus wasn't just a verse quoting machine. He didn't have a divine Rolodex that was just going, you know, and then the thing coming and goes, I know how to fight that one, you know, the whole thing. It wasn't like that. But see, the word of God was so written and inscribed upon his heart and then quickened by the spirit of God that was within him that when that temptation came, it had no place to be seated because he looked at life through the lens of what those things mean. His life was governed by it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, reading verse four, it says that the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And then listen, and casting down imaginations, that means things that come into our mind, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. And then listen, bringing into captivity every thought into the obedience of Christ. In other words, as we allow the word of God to be written upon our hearts and it becomes the framework or the net through which we see all of life, then no matter what comes our way, whether it's a thought into our mind or whether it's a circumstance or whether it's a word that someone speaks or an interaction or a day of work or a proposition or a temptation or an appetite, no matter what it is, we allow the word of God that's been written in our hearts because we've been in it and meditating on it to be what interprets what it is that's coming at us and then we bring it into subjection to the obedience of Christ in that moment. Now see, you can't do that if you're not in the word of God. And so important it is for us to be people of the word. So what happens is that we read um, some scripture and we read, say, the, the, uh, the, the, the story that Jesus told about the Pharisee and, and the publican or the sinner. And they both went into the temple to worship God. And so the publican came in and he was a sinner and he knew it. And he smelled like it, and he looked like it, and he gave an offering like it. He had nothing to give. And he came into the temple, and he dared not even lift up his eyes and look at anything in it. But it says that he just smote his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then there was a Pharisee standing close by, a religiously decorated man. And he came in there in all of his pomp and his arrogance, and he gave his money with pomp and arrogance as he offered loudly to the Lord, and then he prayed out loud, looking up with his eyes open, his face shining. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, perjurers, or like that publican over there, that sinner. But I fast twice a week, and I give tithes and alms of all that I have. I'm so thankful that I'm not like him. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, of these two men, which one do you think went away justified? It was the publican the one who humbled himself and recognized what he was. He went away justified and the other did not. And so we read that verse and we realize and we recognize, whoa, this is important for me not to look down on other people or judge them based upon their appearances. But then you read more of scripture. And you look at the weaknesses that exist throughout the Old Testament in the saints of God. You see the weakness of David, who is a great man of God, but that failed on many levels. You see the weakness of a man named Samson, whom God justifies in the New Testament, but that lives so horribly, so poorly. You read about Daniel, a man of whom nothing negative is ever written any time in his life, but it says that he saw the Lord at one point, and in that moment that he saw the Lord, he recognized how wretched he was, and he says that all of my beauty was turned in me into corruption in that moment that I saw him. And you say, wait a minute, a, a man like Daniel, corrupt? And then you read of Isaiah, who was a prophet of the Lord, used of God. But in chapter six, he saw the Lord. And when he saw the Lord, he said, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes wretchedness. And as you begin to look at life through the framework of the scripture, you begin to realize a couple of things. First of all, who am I to ever look down on anyone else for any reason? And number two, who am I to think that I am not capable of committing the absolute worst sin should I be in the wrong place at the wrong time or under the wrong circumstances? So the temptation comes for you to judge someone or to think evil of someone. And you interpret that temptation through the framework of what you know you are because you've seen it in scripture. And you wouldn't dare look down on someone or speak evil of someone or gossip against someone. Because you recognize. See, it's a working knowledge of the Word of God. But that also means you need a little bit more than Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, doesn't it? Because the Word of God isn't written in our hearts through sermons that we hear from time to time. It's something that we're called to give ourselves to continually. Moses said to Joshua, meditate in it day and night. David said to Solomon the failure. He said, meditate in it day and night. There will be your victory and your success. Psalm chapter one says, blessed are those that meditate in it day and night for they will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth their fruit in their season. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, give thyself wholly to the doctrine, to the word of God. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. See, it's a working knowledge of the word of God and it enables us to have victory in the day of Uh, Of temptation. So, what was the result? Verse 14 tells us it was an empowered life. It says that Jesus returned from this experience having victoriously defeated the temptations of Satan, and he returned in the power of the Spirit, and the fame of him went abroad as his ministry launched forth. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit that released Jesus into the ministry, but it was the successful passing of the test that he had to take. And I think that also speaks to you and me. We ask the question, we say, why? Why these temptations? Why do we have to face these tests? Here's why. It's because God has a plan for you. God has gifts and a ministry and an expression of himself that he wants to use you to give to the rest of the world. And in that usefulness, he's gonna give to you gifts. He's gonna give to you supernatural things. He's gonna reveal himself to you in incredible ways. But no matter what it is that he gives to you, what he's never going to do is violate your free will. Meaning that you have the ability to take what God gives you and then go squander it to use it on yourself. You could take the power that he gives you and you could use it to destroy your own life and tarnish his reputation. And so God brings us through these tests and says, hey, do you know what it means to be satisfied by me yet? Do you understand the living water that comes from walking with Christ in such a way that you wouldn't compromise that for anything else in the world? And Here's the good news, is that if we be willing to walk with him, he will bring every single one of us to that place where he is so precious in our lives that there is not one thing that Satan could ever hold before our eyes or before our pride or before our lives. And we would say, yes, I want that rather than a hem. He is the greatest treasure of all. And so we pass the test and God says, go. That's his will for every one of our lives. And so Jesus reveals through this text not only what the questions are, but how to navigate our way through the tests and the temptations that come that we might live a full and blessed and successful life. Should we pray together? Father, we thank you this morning for the word. It's so to us as we consider what you've made available through its pages and as your spirit speaks it Lord and makes it personal to each of us our desire this morning Lord is that we might be yielded in your hand Lord that we might become those who know you so much who love you so much Lord that nothing would ever compromise that fellowship that we crave with you. And so, Lord, we're asking this morning, Lord, that you would awaken us again to those areas of our life where maybe we've even just given up. Where we've said, I I don't need the Lord. Or he's not going to help me with this. Or this is just an area of constant defeat. Lord, we're asking this morning that we'd be refilled with your Holy Spirit again. Lord, that we would taste the living water that you provide And that, Jesus, you would be our satisfaction again. And, Lord, we're asking those of us here that are facing various temptations and trials, Lord, that these things that we've heard this morning would be for us a source of strength and that we might be completely sanctified to you, body, soul, and spirit. And so have your way, we ask, Lord. and We pray you'd send us forth in power and in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll stand.